Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. As we begin tonight, either on your handout or in your study guide, write down a place, and if you're not writing, just think of it then. Write down or think of a place or scenario that comes to mind when you hear the word paradise. Write down a place or scenario, maybe it's not a particular place, maybe it's a setting or a group of people or uh, some, some place that you are in a particular scenario that comes to mind when you think of paradise. That picture there on your handout is what comes to my mind. Nice sandy beach and some palm trees and crystal clear water and blue skies. That sounds like paradise to me. So you might have some different ideas. You might like the mountains or the desert or, I don't know, swamps. That might be your, <laughs> Nidra's from Louisiana, maybe paradise is, is like swamp to Nidra. Whatever comes to your mind when you think of the word paradise. So what is it about this place or this event, this scenario that makes this paradise? Why, when I said paradise and you began to think through things in your mind, did that place or that scene or that event or that setting come to mind? Uh, obvious for mine, tranquility and peace and water and sunshine and fresh air. I mean, all that stuff sort of makes you think paradise. Uh, maybe for you, it's a, a shopping mall and you like to hustle and the bustle and being able to go buy things. I don't know what makes it paradise for you. But as we begin our second session tonight, we're going to think about what it means to go to heaven. If last week we answered the question, what is heaven, we sort of laid a, a groundwork for the theology of heaven, this week we're going to dive deeper into that and think about our destination of heaven. What happens when we die? Where do we go? How do we go there? Is that all there is? We die and go to heaven and then that's, that's the end. We're going to discover those questions tonight, what it means for heaven to be paradise. So as we begin, begin our discussion tonight, thinking about paradise, thinking about heaven as paradise, we have a question. Is heaven our final destination? Is heaven our default destination? The book covers this a little bit, and it's in the study guide as well at the beginning of the lesson. But this is an important lesson, uh, important question for all of us to consider. Is heaven, as human beings, is heaven our default home? Is heaven the default destination for every single human being? Now, you know as well as I do that Romans 3.23 says that the wages of sin is death. And we know enough about what that word means to know it means more than just physical death. That Paul is talking about the recompense we deserve for our sin. The judgment that God owes us for our sin. He's a just judge. He's a good judge. Yes, he's loving and he's kind and he's merciful and gracious, but he's also just. And he's not going to bend justice to accommodate our sin. And so we have that problem understanding that no, heaven is not 
the default destination for humanity. Hell is the default destination for humanity. Unfortunately, when we see people in the news or celebrity culture or celebrities, uh, someone famous dies, there's this, this little inclination we all have, an inclination certainly in the media and in the world, to automatically assume that they've gone to heaven. And we say things like rest in peace, even about people who are not believers, because there's this assumption that death is rest and peace and paradise and heaven just for everybody. But the Bible presents us with a different picture. It, pre- it presents us with a humanity that has fallen in sin, that has rebelled against God, that deserves his condemnation. And so our default destination is that place of condemnation, not paradise. But of course, this isn't the end of the story, thankfully. Uh, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, as we answer this question, what has God done for us? Heaven is not our default destination. We deserve condemnation from God. We deserve hell from God. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, if you are in Christ, the good news is that you have been bought with a price. You've been purchased out of the world, transferred out of the domain of darkness, out of the domain in the kingdom of Satan, and you've been transferred into the kingdom of God into the kingdom of God's marvelous light, Paul says. You have been purchased with a price. So this is just basically laying the the groundwork of the gospel to understand that humanity's default destination is not heaven, it is hell. Why? Because of our sin. It's what we are owed. But God has acted in Christ to purchase a people for himself. And if your faith and trust is in Jesus Christ, you've repented of your sins and trusted him for salvation, your destination is now switched from the default, which is hell, and has been changed to the new destination of heaven. So I hope tonight as we begin this study and sort of session two, if you're listening later, I hope that you have trusted in Christ for salvation, and if you have not, or if you have questions, you're unsure about that, that you will make that certain, and you'll trust in Jesus so that you can know your destination is heaven. Tonight, we want to ask this question, what happens when we die? As Christians, evangelical, conservative, going to church, been to Bible school, went to Sunday school, believers, most of us in this room, I think that applies to of course, we, we have an answer to that question. We go to heaven. Christians die, we go to heaven. Unbelievers die, they go to hell. And that sounds very simple and very cut and dry for us, but there are still a lot of questions. Maybe even last week as we talked about heaven as a place and the kingdom that is coming and the physical heaven that is going to come to a physical earth, maybe, maybe your wheel started turning and you think, well, maybe I don't know what happens when we die. I hope as we go through the lesson tonight, we'll raise some more questions, but also answer some questions. The Bible uses one interesting metaphor for death. Paul uses it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Anybody tell me what that metaphor is for death? Jesus uses it. Paul uses it. Peter used it. Fall asleep. Those who have fallen asleep in the Lord. Jesus, when he meets Jairus' daughter there on the bed, he says she's not ill, she's not dead, she is just sleeping. He was using that as a metaphor for death. Some people have have seen that metaphor of sleep and have, in my opinion, twisted it to mean something it doesn't. 
I don't know if you've ever heard of the term soul sleep, but if you have Jehovah's Witness friends or uh, brothers and sisters that may be Seventh-day Adventist, they don't believe in a conscious afterlife. So Jehovah's Witnesses, Adventists, Seventh-day Adventists, they don't believe that when you die, you're conscious of anything until the resurrection, and then you go to heaven or hell, or for Jehovah's Witnesses, heaven or paradise or earth or whatever they consider hell. So there's, there's all these different, these different versions that people have when they hear the word sleep. They say, oh, that must mean that you're not alive when you die. You're sleeping. You're not aware. You're not conscious. So they would disagree with evangelical, I think, biblical Christians when we say that when we die, we're with the Lord, and we're at peace, and we're conscious of being with the Lord. We're aware of it. Even though our body is dead, our soul is alive, and we're conscious of it. Or the other side, we're conscious of an existence in hell if we're unbelievers, and there's pain, and there's torment. We believe that happens when we die. So they would say, no, Jesus says it's sleep. Paul says it's sleep. Peter called it sleep. And so they say it must be like going to sleep and then you don't wake up until the resurrection. The Bible more or less uses the metaphor sleep not to say that we're unconscious or that we don't understand what's happening or that our soul is not conscious in an afterlife somewhere. It doesn't mean that. The word sleep implies that it's temporary. That's what Jesus meant when he said Jairus' daughter was asleep. She was dead. But Jesus was downplaying death because he was about to raise her from the dead. Paul, when he talks about believers being asleep in Christ, he doesn't mean that they're unaware of their existence in heaven or they're somehow unaware of their existence, uh, unbelievers' existence in hell. But for believers who have fallen asleep, there is coming a day of resurrection. There's going to be a resurrection of unbelievers too, remember. But for believers, he calls it sleep because there's going to be a reawakening to eternal life. So what do we do when we die? Where do we go when we die? And does the scripture give us answers? If you have your Bible, um, look at Ecclesiastes chapter 12, back in the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes 12, just verse 7. Ecclesiastes is a great book. If you ever just want to go through it, it might be depressing at first, but pay, pay attention to the high notes in, in Ecclesiastes. Interestingly enough, I can see my notes here from where I was preaching through Ecclesiastes in North Carolina before COVID shut us down. And I think I got about two sermons in on the video audio sermons um, in the COVID shutdown before I realized I might need to change subjects because, you know, life is empty, life is meaningless, life is vain, and we're all sitting at home by ourselves all the time. So I switched and preached something else. So I never got to Ecclesiastes 12, 7. But look at what the author says in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7. The dust returns to the earth as it was, speaking of our physical bodies. And the spirit returns to God who gave it. So even here in the Old Testament, we have these glimpses of how life and death work. And they weren't unaware of this. Remember, we talked about Adam. He was formed from the dust of the ground. God breathed into him. His spirit, he became a living soul, living being, spiritual, physical. The author of Ecclesiastes picks up on that and says this is death. When we die, the dust goes back to the dust, but that is not the end. Our spirit goes to be with God who made it. Look now to the New Testament, uh, the Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. 
Luke 16, verses, uh, the reference is verses 22 through 31. We'll just look at a few of these. Luke 16, 22 through 31. You'll be familiar with this. Um, some of your Bibles are going to call it a parable. Some refer to it as actual history. Scholars debate that, but there's the story, the parable, or the history narrative of Lazarus and the rich man. Now, there's a few interesting things to note about Lazarus and the rich man. Remember, Lazarus, he's, he's poor, he's destitute, he sits underneath the table waiting on the crumbs, the dogs are licking his sores, he's just a poor, uh, almost said a poor unfortunate soul, was tuning into Little Mermaid there. He's a poor, destitute man at the foot of this rich man um, who doesn't have a name. Traditionally, he's been called Dives, but the scripture does not tell us that. And you know how the story goes. They both die. And in verse 22, we read this. The poor man, Lazarus, died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, that is hell, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Now, I love Luke 16, 22, and I love that Mr. Bob wanted Angel Band in his funeral. That is one of my favorite songs, and I want it in my funeral, too. And my little biblical buddy sometimes, if I say, uh, I like that song, there's this question. Well, you know, isn't that a little romanticized? Isn't it a little sentimental to think about angels carrying you to heaven? I mean, is that really in the Bible? Yet right here it is, because when Lazarus dies, dies, the angels are there, and the angels carry him immediately upon his death into heaven, into what we presume is a conscious existence in what Jesus calls Abraham's bosom or paradise. Now, the converse is also true for the rich man. He dies. And he is buried, but that is not the end of his story. Because it seems like immediately, while Lazarus goes to be at peace with the Lord, the rich man is in hell, and it says he is in torment. Not only is he in torment, but he's able to communicate. Remember, he asks Abraham to send Lazarus for a drink of water or to send Lazarus to his brothers and to preach. So there's communication. He's aware. He's conscious. He knows who he is. He knows who Lazarus is. He knows who Abraham is. So this is not some disembodied soul sleep where these people are unaware of what's going on to them. Lazarus knows what's happening. The rich man knows what's happening. Um, look at Luke chapter 23, verse 43. Uh, when, when Jesus is dying on the cross, remember the thief on the cross um, Presumably, after mocking Jesus, turns and has a change of heart, and he realizes Jesus is who he says he is, and he says to Jesus, as they're both dying on the cross, he says to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Do you remember what Jesus said to him? In Luke 23, verse 43, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So just as Jesus died, and he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, he says to this thief on the cross, Today, even as my spirit goes back to the Father, Ecclesiastes reminds us of this, Lazarus shows us this, now Jesus says this, even as I go to be with the Father, your spirit will also be with me in paradise. Okay? So we're building this case for this conscious 
afterlife existence in heaven or in hell. Uh, look over in the book of Philippians. This is the most Bible turning we're going to do tonight, I promise. Uh, we're going to look at a few places here. It's important. Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 20. You remember Paul's sort of dilemma within himself. Paul wants to honor the Lord, and he says in verse 20 at the end there, no matter what happens to me, basically, Paul says, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by death or life. Okay, so Paul says, this, this isn't really a conundrum for me. I'm going to honor the Lord no matter how he chooses to use me. He, he may find glory in my martyrdom, which he eventually does, or he might find glory in me continuing to live and to minister. And Paul says either one, Christ will get the glory. And then he says in verse 21, classic verse, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. So Paul doesn't necessarily, it's hard. Paul does not want to die. He wants to keep on ministering for the sake of his people, for the sake of the churches. He wants to keep on in his fruitful ministry. But it's also hard for him to choose because in verse 23 he says, I am hard pressed between the two. My desire inwardly, if he were to say selfishly, is to depart and to be with Christ for that is far better. So Paul seems to think that when he dies, he will be with Christ, and that being with Christ in his death is better than remaining here on earth. Verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. I want to stay here for your account. But you feel this dilemma Paul faces. I want to stay here and do ministry. I want to see you grow in the Lord as his flock. He, he's passionate for them. He wants to minister with them. But then he also says, but you know, I really want to go and be with Jesus. To live is Christ, but to die is gain. I mean, how do you compare living for Christ with seeing Christ? And Paul says, of course, that's better, but this is still good. And so he struggles between the two. But very clearly, the theology of Paul in death is that when he dies, he will consciously be with the Lord. And that will be better than him remaining here on earth for him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 1, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage, we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So Paul is comparing living in this life, in this world, in this body with dwelling in a tent 
a tent that will one day pass away and something else will take its place. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But he's very clear that while we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. And when we then are away from our body, we will at last be with the Lord. So Paul understands that to die is to be with the Lord. Look at Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Revelation 6, 9 through 11. And I want you to mark this for later. We're going to come back here and I'm going to ask you to note a few things. This, remember, is a scene in heaven. The words that we hear, the emotions that we see, they are words spoken in heaven. They are emotions felt in heaven right now. And what John sees in Revelation 6, starting in verse 9, the angel opened the fifth seal, and I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. So whatever this altar is, he sees the souls of these martyrs of, of God. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were killed as they themselves had been. Now I want you to put a little marker there. We're going to come back to that later and ask a few questions about the present heaven. These souls of the martyrs are in heaven. They are in the presence of the Lord, at peace with Christ. And yet they speak these words and they feel these emotions and they have these memories. What does that tell us about heaven? So when we die, as believers or unbelievers, we go to a conscious afterlife somewhere. It is not soul sleep. It is not an unconscious disembodied state somewhere. We are either consciously in torment in hell as unbelievers or consciously at peace with Christ in heaven. So the question is, is that state... When we die, and let's just keep it on the believer's side because we're talking about heaven after all. We're doing a whole series on hell later. I'm sure everybody will come to that. We go to, we go to heaven. We're with the Lord. We're, we're at peace with Christ. This is what we've been waiting on our whole lives, right? This is what we've been gearing up to when we die to be with Jesus. And so the question is, is that state our eternal one? And the answer is... No, it is not our eternal state. Theologians call it the intermediate state. I like how the author has sort of repackaged that and calls it the present heaven. Intermediate kind of makes it sound like it doesn't matter all that much. No, it is heaven. We are with Christ. We are at peace. There is fullness and peace in his presence. Absolutely. But it is not the end of the story. We haven't yet come to the end. And so I like that the author calls it this present heaven. So what is the present heaven or the intermediate state? Well, simply put, the present heaven or the intermediate state is the presence of the believer with Christ. It is the presence of our souls with Jesus. It is conscious. We are aware we are at peace 
We are in what we can call heaven with Jesus. But the question, is this our final destination? The answer is no. At least not this heaven. (laughs) And now we're saying, well, wait, you're saying there's more than one heaven? Well, let's say it this way. There's more than one state of heaven. And so this present heaven, this intermediate state, will change at some point in the future. Um, I just want to read a few quotes from the book. Uh, If you have the book book on pages 42 and 43, under the heading, Will We Live in Heaven Forever? It, It starts with this paragraph. Will we live in heaven forever? The answer to this question, will we live in heaven forever, depends on what we mean by heaven. Will we be forever with the Lord? Absolutely. Will we always be with him in exactly the same place that heaven is now? No. In the present heaven, we'll be in Christ's presence and we'll be joyful, but we'll be looking forward to our bodily resurrection and permanent relocation to the new earth. Are you following this? Two paragraphs later, it begins with, it may seem strange. It may seem strange to say that uh, the heaven we go to at death isn't eternal. Now, maybe it hit you as strange tonight, yet it's true. Christians often talk about living with God in heaven forever, writes theologian Wayne Grudem. But in fact, the biblical teaching is richer than that. It tells us that there will be a new heavens and a new earth and an entirely renewed creation. And we will live with God there. There will also be a new kind of unification of heaven and earth. There will be a joining of heaven and earth in this new creation. Over on page 43, a couple paragraphs down under the quote, you'll see similarly. (laughs) Similarly, the heaven we go to when we die, the present heaven, is a temporary dwelling place. A stop along the way to our final destination the new earth. Now, it's interesting to think about the, the illustration he gives. There's some parts of it I don't like, but it, I think it helps us just to visualize what we're talking about here. I've discovered, you know, living here and when, we're, when we were flying out here to try out and to visit and all that stuff, and the, the several times we've flown since then, uh, you don't go from Amarillo to anywhere except Las Vegas or Colorado Springs or, or Denver. If you're, trying to get to, if you're trying to get to Atlanta, Charlotte, Florida, anywhere else that you might want to go, you're going to go to Dallas, or you're going to go to Austin, or, or Houston, or somewhere. There's going to be a layover. And I like the illustration he gave on page 43 of a sort of layover, a connecting flight. That if you can imagine the present heaven as that connecting flight. It's an airplane. It's taking you further to your destination. It's not sitting on the ground. You are going somewhere. But when you get to your final destination after the other connecting flight, you don't say, I'm going to Dallas. You say, I'm going to Orlando, or I'm going to Charlotte, or I'm going to Nashville. So this is how the author says, in some ways, there are some caveats there, but in some ways, that's how you can think of the present heaven. It is real heaven. It is with Christ. There is peace. There is joy. There is fullness in him. But it is not the final destination. It is a connecting flight to our final destination. 
I like how he puts it on page 44. He talks about a change, that there's a change in heaven, not in the substance of heaven. Presence of God, peace with Christ, joy in him, fullness of his presence and joy. There's, There's not a change in what heaven is. It's more of a change in where heaven is. From God's place, God's dwelling, to what we read in Revelation, when the dwelling place of God comes to be with man. And what he says in that unification of earth and the present heaven in the new earth and the new Jerusalem, the Bible calls it. I like this distinction he makes. The present heaven is an angelic realm where God and his angels dwelt and where he receives the souls of believers. It's distinct and separate from physical earth. Okay, Present heaven, an angelic realm, distinct and separate from physical earth. In the future heaven, on the new earth, the new Jerusalem, listen, it will be a human realm on physical earth. So that what what John says and sees in Revelation chapter 21, Behold, I make all things new. And behold, the dwelling place of God, heaven, is now with man. So if you think about present heaven, intermediate state, future heaven, new heaven, whatever you want to call it, which one is heaven? Present heaven or future heaven? And the answer is yes. The answer is just yes. Because both are the dwelling place of God and the dwelling place of the believer with God. It's just a matter of where. The angelic realm where God is now or the future when that realm merges with this realm. Now I want you to go back in your minds or maybe in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6 and think about those martyrs there under the altar and think, and think about this because this, this answers some questions you might have about heaven. And theologians are going to disagree on what's going on in Revelation chapter 6. Is that present? Is it like in the far future? This author takes the present view. I would take the present view, Revelation chapter 6, that what we're witnessing are the souls of the martyrs awaiting the day of judgment and resurrection. But it tells us something about the intermediate state. Number one, they remember life on earth. How many of you have ever asked that question about heaven? Will I remember life on earth? Will I have memories of what happened here? The good or the bad? Well, I want to challenge you biblically just real quick that these martyrs remember life on earth. And here's one that's going to puzzle you maybe the rest of the night. They remember the good and the bad. Because what are they waiting on? They're waiting on God's judgment for what happened to them as martyrs. Number two, they are aware of events on earth. Now, it doesn't go into detail that they're looking down into the holes in the floor of heaven. What is that song? And I don't know about it. I don't know about all that. But they're aware. They're aware that they're in heaven, not on earth. They're aware that the resurrection hasn't happened. They're aware that the judgment hasn't come. They're aware that their, their persecutors and sinners are still living on the earth. Here's one that might challenge us tonight. Don't stone me. 
they're praying. These saints under the altar are praying. They're talking to God. Presumably, knowing events on earth, remembering events on earth, presumably they can pray for believers. Now, here's, not, here's what we're not saying, okay? I know where everybody's going. In the Roman Catholic system, saints can be prayed to, not as the source of uh, the object of prayer, but people on earth pray to saints in the Roman Catholic system so that those saints will in turn pray for them in heaven. Okay? So they might pray to Mary or St. Jude or St. Peter or someone, and you'll hear them say, St. Christopher, pray for us, or Our Lady of whatever, pray for us. And that's not what we're talking about. Okay? We're not told to pray to saints, but we are also told that it seems the saints are praying. Maybe for us. I don't know. Here it doesn't say, but maybe. And here's the most challenging one. They grieve over events on earth. Now, I cannot begin to just flesh out everything that means for when we die and we go to be with Jesus, what we remember, what we feel. You know, I thought every pain was going to be gone. I thought every tear was going to be wiped away. We're going to talk about that in a minute. I don't know what all that means in detail. All I know is what the Bible says. Paul says to be with Christ is gain. He said he would rather be with Christ than be here. We know it's glorious, it's peace, it's joy. But we also see these examples of souls in heaven remembering, grieving, wanting God's justice to come, and waiting in heaven. I wonder if we ever think of heaven in these terms. This takes us to this statement and maybe a question. This world is not our home, or is it? This world is not our home, or is it? The question is, is this future eternal heaven really that far away? Is it really that far away? On page 77, there's this quote that we need to remember as we think about the intermediate state, the present heaven and future heaven, and, and is, it all, is it really all that different, and what's it going to be when it comes here? This is what the author says, uh, beginning of chapter 8, page 77, first paragraph under our longing for Eden. We are homesick for Eden. We're nostalgic for what is implanted in our hearts. It's built into us, perhaps at a genetic level. We long for what the first man and woman once enjoyed, a perfect and beautiful earth with free and untainted relationships with God, each other, animals, and our environment. Every attempt at, listen, this is so good, every attempt at human progress has been an attempt to overcome what was lost in the fall. Every attempt at human progress is an attempt to regain or to salvage what we lost in the fall. You know, there's a reason we find things beautiful. I think there's a reason when I think of paradise, I think of an ocean and palm trees and a sky, or you think of mountains or a creek or camping or hunting or whatever it is. There's a reason that we think of those things and it brings us joy because it's built into us to find joy there. Because God has built the love of creation, the love of other people, and the love of him. He's built that into us. And so we think about what heaven will be and what the eternal state will be. 
Yes, it's going to be so radically better than what we have here, but I don't know that it's going to be all that terribly different than what we know in the goodness of God's creation here. Because it all seems to point us back to Eden. Look at Romans chapter 8 with me, and let's, let's look at some of this for a little while. Paul's going to compare two things here, the flesh and the spirit. I think sometimes when we as Christians hear Paul talk about the flesh and the spirit, we, we tend to think that he's talking about sin and righteousness. That when he talks about the flesh, he's talking about sin and temptation and lust. And when he talks about the spirit, he's talking about godly things and holiness and righteousness. And there are aspects of that that are true. Sometimes Paul is really just talking about our fleshly existence versus a spiritual existence. And in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 17, I want you to notice a few things. He begins chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh look at verse 4 in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit so Paul here is not meaning flesh in terms of just utter sinfulness because he's talking about the law of God when he's talking about the flesh Physical rules, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do that. So for Paul, part of what it means to live in the flesh isn't just to be sinful or to fall into temptation. Part of what Paul means by living in the flesh is trying to please God according to fleshly things, trying to please God according to good works or the law. And Paul says that didn't work. The flesh is too weak. We couldn't obey God's law. There's no life in the flesh, so we better find ourselves alive in the spirit. We better find life somewhere else. And then Paul begins to compare and to contrast these different kinds of um, lives. Look at verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Watch these, these uh, contradictions. Verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. It cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to you. Look at verse 11. The spirit of him who rose, raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You see Paul's comparison and contrast. What does the flesh lead us to? Hopelessness, death, despair. But what does life in the spirit lead us to? Life and joy and ultimately resurrection. Paul says we see little glimpses of heaven here because life in the Spirit is life, true life, eternal life, resurrection life. He goes on in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 27 to tell us something even further about heaven and about what it means for God to redeem us. 
If life in the Spirit reminds us that redemption is coming, what does that redemption look like? Look at Romans 8, starting in verse 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Okay, stop. This is how we think of heaven, isn't it? God is going to redeem us. I'm going to heaven, my soul, people, believers, and then we stop. But look at verse 19. For the creation waits. Just like we're waiting, creation is waiting with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Look at verse 24. Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. The creation didn't make this decision. Adam and Eve made this decision. And they subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly and we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now I want you to get this picture that Paul is painting for us here, that just as we by the Holy Spirit, through the life that is in the Spirit, just as we long for heaven, and just as we long eagerly, he says, groaning like in childbirth, for God to redeem us, creation is longing and groaning eagerly with us. We are joined together, human and the rest of all creation, waiting and longing for Christ to appear. In the book on page 87... Let me read this quote. I'll just read it to you. I can find it. Listen to this in light of what we just heard from Paul. Page 88, I'm sorry, at the bottom of the book. God has never given up on his original creation. Yet somehow we've managed to overlook an entire biblical vocabulary that makes this point clear. Reconcile, listen to the words, reconcile, redeem, restore, recover, return, renew, regenerate, resurrect. You hear what each of those words has in common? What is it? Re, the prefix re, suggesting a return to an original condition that was ruined but not lost. Now, I hope this begins to kind of shape how we're thinking about heaven. It is not that something has been utterly ruined and lost and thrown away, and God just wads up the earth and throws it away into hell. No, but there is a return, a renewal, a restoration, a recreation, a resurrection. That implies not the throwing away of the old and beginning from scratch, but a recovery and a rescue, redemption of that which already is. Where do we see this promise of a new heaven, a new earth in Scripture? First of all, Isaiah Isaiah chapter 66, verse 22. You can write that down, Isaiah 66, 22. I won't read it to you. It's just the prophet from the Lord (laughs) revealing that part of God's end time promise is to make a new heaven and a new earth. 
2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, if you don't want to turn there, you can just see it at the top of your handout, the very first page, top of it, underneath the session 2. The apostle Peter says, but keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. Where is Peter getting that from? Isaiah. And so when we come to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, and God says to John, behold, I'm making all things new. This isn't just coming out of nowhere. And God suddenly decides in Revelation not to throw it away, but to make it new. No, he's fulfilling his promise that he made to Adam and Eve, that he makes to Isaiah, that he made through Christ, that he reminded us of through the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul. And now in Revelation chapter 21, we see the end of it all from here. And what does he say? Behold, I am making all things new. Are there similarities, though, in that newness to what we have now? Write down Revelation 21 through 22 and go by, go by and look at that later when we have the new Jerusalem coming down onto the new earth. And what John sees might seem otherworldly, but he's able to describe it using earthly concepts, gold and jasper and sapphire and foundations, and there's walls and there's stones and there's pearl. It looks like a city. And it comes down to the new earth, and then what do we suddenly see? A river and trees. And all of this, while it might be more glorious and recreated and redeemed then, it's not completely different than what we can see now in the beauty of God's creation. We know trees. We know beautiful trees and beautiful rivers and mountains and beaches and oceans and everything else. We know beautiful stones and gold and sapphire and pearl. And when John sees the new heaven, he's able to describe what he sees, maybe not perfectly, but he's able to describe what he sees using that language. Stephen Lawson said, he's quoted in the book on page 91, whatever sin has touched and polluted, whatever sin has touched and polluted, God will redeem and cleanse. If redemption does not go as far as the curse of sin, God has failed. Whatever the extent of the consequences of sin, so must the extent of redemption be. It doesn't stop with just humans going to heaven. It ends on a new earth with God reigning over all things the way that they were meant to be apart from sin and evil. Of course, this brings us to the concept of the resurrection. If I were to ask you tonight, what is the ultimate hope of the Christian? You'd say, well, we're talking about it right now, aren't we? Heaven. And in a way, yes. But how do we get to the future heaven? Not the present heaven with our death, but what is our ultimate hope? After the connecting flight, what's our destination? The ultimate hope for the Christian is the resurrection of the body. The resurrection of the body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we don't have time to turn there, just, just write that down for later, later. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the all-important section on the resurrection. 
Paul reminds us of the importance of the belief that we will rise from the dead. We understand it's important that Jesus rose from the dead, don't we? I mean, that's hallmark, central to our faith, can't do without the resurrection of Jesus. Paul's point in in 1 Corinthians 15, though, is that if Jesus has been raised, we too will be raised. And so to deny the bodily resurrection of believers, Paul says, is to deny the resurrection of Christ. Because what happened to Jesus was a prototype. He was the first fruits. There's coming another resurrection for us. So Paul ties the resurrection of Jesus to the resurrection of the believer. That's why in all the historic creeds that sadly many churches have done away with, in all the historic creeds, they're always sure to say, whether it's the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, whatever it is, one of the things we confess together is, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Part of what it means to be a Christian is not just to die and go to heaven, But I believe in the resurrection of the body because that there is the change from the present heaven and the intermediate state into the eternal future heaven. Back on page 59 in the book, I'm going backwards, I know, but it made sense to use the quote now. Page 59 in the book, uh, in the middle, paragraph starts, we do not receive Author says, we do not receive resurrection bodies immediately after death. How many times have you been at a funeral and heard that? How many times have you been at a funeral with maybe even the person's body right there and someone says they have their new bodies? And you're sitting there probably thinking, no, they don't because it's right there. The author says, we do not receive resurrection bodies immediately after death. Resurrection is not one at a time. If we have intermediate forms in their intermediate heaven, then they won't be our true bodies, which have died. Continuity is only between our original and resurrection bodies. If we're given intermediate forms, they are at best temporary vessels, but they are distinct from true bodies, which remain dead until the resurrection. He says on page 112, Third paragraph down, the biblical doctrine of the resurrection of the dead begins with the human body, but extends far beyond it. R.A. Torrey writes, quote, we will not be disembodied spirits in the world to come, but redeemed spirits in redeemed bodies in a redeemed universe. If we don't get it right in the resurrection of the body, we'll get nothing else right. It's therefore critical we not merely affirm the resurrection of the dead as a point of doctrine, but we understand the meaning of the resurrection that we affirm. You know what Job held on to in spite of all his suffering and trials? Job, which significantly many believe was the first book written, not in the history of the Bible, but the first book date-wise written in the Old Testament. Job even says, Job 19 verse 26, That my heart and my flesh may fail. What does he say? Yet in my flesh, in my flesh, I will see God. Job confesses the resurrection of the body. That even if my heart and flesh fail now, there will come a time when in my flesh, with my eyes, 
I will see God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 42 through 44, he's contrasting our earthly body now with our resurrection body then. And what are the words he uses? Some of you probably know this by heart. That the mortal must put on immortality. That the perishable must put on the imperishable. That this body and this existence which will die, the tent that he spoke of earlier, is temporary and will fade away and will go to the dirt. But there is another body coming. Another resurrected, glorified body coming. So the question at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, does Paul then reject the importance of our bodies? Sometimes we Christians are so, so tempted to do this, I think, when we sing songs about heaven, I'll fly away, and then we say, you know, when I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away, and as if that's the end of the story. And we view this body as if it's just our temporary home, and we're going to put it in the ground, and we're going to go to heaven with our souls, and praise the Lord, that's the end of it. But that's not the end of it. There is more coming. The resurrection of that body that we put in the ground or scattered somewhere or was lost at sea or whatever else has happened to bodies. Paul says God's able to make a body however he wants to make a body. It's important that God overcomes death and sin and the effects of the fall by showing Satan his power in raising that body that was killed back from, the, back from death, reuniting it with our souls and our spirits in heaven, and we will forever be with the Lord. So Paul teaches that our bodies are important, that they, in a sense, will be eternal when they are raised from the dead and glorified and made new. I want to close tonight with the quote from page 127 in the book. At the very bottom of page 127, the author says, John Calvin writes in his commentary on Romans 8:19. We just read that about creation being redeemed. Calvin says, quote, "I understand this passage to have this meaning." That there is no element, no element, and no part of the world which is being touched, as it were, with a sense of its present misery that does not intensely hope for the resurrection. You hear what he said? There's not one element, not one molecule, not one particle, not one atom that in this present state of misery does not anticipate the resurrection. And here's my challenge to you tonight. If creation itself longs for the day of resurrection, if all other creation cannot wait for the new heavens and the new earth and the redemption of all things, what should that say about what we hope for? And what we long for. And what does it say about what we live for? Let's pray. Thank you, our God and Father, for the promise of heaven. And uh, maybe we have a fuller understanding of what that means tonight. Not just a, a spiritual place where we go and we die, as wonderful as that is. But a very real place that is coming to this earth. A new earth. 
And God, help us to long for that day. Help us to long for the day when we see you, when we die, when we go to be in your presence, but help us more than that to long for the day when all things are made new, all things are set right, when you at last wipe every tear from every eye and there is no more sorrow and no more pain and no more death forever and ever. God, we thank you for the promise of the resurrection. We thank you for the promise of a new creation. Help us to live in light of that which is coming. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.